بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد My dear brothers and sisters السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته <laughs> Is anyone here? <laughs> We're going to be continuing with hadith number 15 tonight with Allah Ta'ala. It is the hadith on Abi Hurairah radiallahu anhu anna Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal Man kana yu'minu billahi wal yawm al-akhir falyakul khayran aw liyasmut wa man kana yu'minu billahi wal yawm al-akhir falyukrim jarahu wa man kana yu'min billahi wal yawm al-akhir falyukrim daifahu Rawahu al-Bukhari wa Muslim on the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Whoever believes in Allah in the last day should speak good things or keep silent. I need to get this mic fixed. Let's try this instead. On the authority of Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu, who said that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Whoever believes in Allah in the last day should speak good things or keep silent. Whoever believes in Allah in the last day should be courteous and generous to his neighbor. Whoever believes in Allah in the last day should be courteous and generous to his traveling visitor. Recorded by Al-Bukhari and Muslim. So the narrator of the hadith is Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu. And we've been discussing him for the quite, I think for the last past three or four narrations. So who remembers anything about from the biography of Abu Huraira? I know you were definitely here last week. I know you were here last week, so you guys are definitely responsible for something. <laughs> Yalla, give me something about Abu Huraira. Uh, he lived in the masjid. He lived in the masjid, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic, he followed the Prophet a lot. So he was from the Ahl al-Sufa, and he narrated the most amount of hadith from the Messenger of Allah His original name was Abu Shams. Abu Shams. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you know his full name though? Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar ad dawsi Fantastic. So his full name was Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar ad dawsi You need to give me something as well. Give me either when he was born or when he died or where he was governor of. <laughs> Can't remember. Okay, no worries. It's better to right? It's better to remain quiet if you don't. Good. Fantastic. You're learning already. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> So his full name was Abdurrahman ibn Sakhar al dawsi more commonly known as Abu Huraira. He was born 17 or 18 years before the Hijrah. 17 years or 18 years before the Hijrah. And he died 59 years after the Hijrah. He died 59 years after the Hijrah. So he is 76, 77 years old, uh, radiallahu anhu, when he passed away. And Umar radiallahu anhu for a short period of time had appointed him as governor of Bahrain. He had appointed him governor of Bahrain. So that's the narrator of the hadith. For a detailed discussion on him, uh, in hadith number 9 we did like a full biography of him. Tayyib, general comments about this hadith. This hadith, one of the great scholars of hadith by the name of Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, he said this hadith is one-third of Islam. He said this hadith is one-third of Islam. His reasoning behind this was, he says if you look at all of the actions in Islam, they fall under one of three categories. Either they are actions of the tongue, either they are actions of the heart, or they are actions of the limbs. And this hadith starts off by generally summarizing the actions of the tongue. That either you speak good or you remain silent. And that is why he called this hadith one-third of Islam. He called this hadith one-third of Islam. Number two, a general look at this hadith, it shows you a very important concept on the 
how Islam encompasses every single aspect of our lives. So we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us as social beings, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't want us to be isolationists. He wanted to us to interact with other people. And here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they gave us guidelines, right? These are the guidelines that you should abide by in order for society to thrive, in order for a community to grow, in order for love to prosper with one another. These are the laws that you abide by. So this shows us that Islam is not just about an individualistic religion, but it also teaches us how to interact with other people. And that interaction with other people is actually very, very important. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he summarized in a, in a beautiful hadith, that this whole religion is basically about how you deal and interact with one another. Now it's not the religion in its totality, but he said the majority of the religion. Meaning that the majority of good deeds that you will get will be through how you interact with one another. The majority of bad deeds that we will incur will also be through how we interact with one another. So the way that we interact with one another is something that we have to take very, very seriously. Now the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he starts off this hadith by saying, whoever believes in Allah and the last day. Now the scholars have derived many, many benefits from this statement alone. Whoever believes in Allah and the last day. And we want to just summarize what they've said about this statement. Man kana akhir, that whoever believes in Allah and the last day. They said number one is that here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is showing the justice of Islam. Meaning that in Islam, uh, you know, it's not about the, the, the color of your race, it's, uh, it's not about the color of your skin, it's not about your race, it's not about your ethnicity, it's not about how tall you are or how short you are or what your likes and dislikes are, but it is purely based upon your choice of belief. So if you choose to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day, then your, your, your deeds will be accepted. If you choose not to accept uh, belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the last day, then your belief will be rejected. So it had nothing to do with who your parents were and none of that stuff. But it's a conscious choice that you make. Number two, the scholars commented on how this hadith incites motivation and fear inside of an individual at the same time. So when you think about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is the general feeling that you get about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? We get a feeling of love because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides for us. We get a feeling of love because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to forgive us. We get a feeling of love because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers our du'as. So this is inciting hope inside of an individual. Now when you think about the Day of Judgment, what do you think of? You think about people running around in chaos. You think about people getting a glimpse of the hellfire on that day. You get a glimpse of people being anxious, waiting for their reckoning. And this incites fear into the individual. So here the Messenger of Allah وسلم, is inspiring an individual with a perfect balance of love and hope and fear at the same time. Because these are the emotions that are required in order to do good deeds and to be consistent in them. That sometimes you'll need more love and hope, sometimes you'll need more fear. And then this introduction to the hadith, it incites both of them perfectly. It incites both of them perfectly. The third thing we see over here is that this introduction is a refutation against those people that say that, you know, if Allah wanted me to do good, I would have done good. And if, you know, I did bad, because this is what Allah chose for me. This is the divine decree that was chosen for me. But here in reality, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he shows us that even our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day are conscious choices that we make. So to make you know, uh, an argument based upon decree when it comes to good and bad deeds will never be valid. Because no one can ever enforce upon you, should I believe or should I disbelieve? 
right? This is a conscious choice that we will all make. So this, in summary, are you know, three of the main points that the scholars have mentioned about this introduction. Now, as to why the Messenger of Allah specifically mentions these two uh, things. You know, the Messenger of Allah could have said, whoever believes in the, Quran, in the Quran and the angels. And he could have said, whoever believes you know, in, in Qadr and the, 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 the prophets, right? But the Messenger of Allah specifically chose Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day. The belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the most integral component of our faith, right? Our belief in Allah, our interaction with Allah is the most integral component. So this is the foundation of our faith. This is why he uh, mentions it. As for the choosing of the last day, then this is based upon that each and every individual is basically waiting for that one day, subhanAllah. That we're waiting, that will we be from the people of paradise or will we be from the inhabitants of the hellfire? And we pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not make us of the latter. So now, that is why the Messenger of Allah specifically chose these two uh, out of the uh, six famous pillars of Iman. The six famous pillars of Iman. Then the Messenger of Allah وسلم, after he says this, if you believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day, then you need to do the following. And the first piece of advice the Messenger of Allah وسلم, gives is that he should speak good or he should keep silent. Speak good or keep silent. Very, very simple advice. And the more you think about this advice, subhanAllah, the more powerful you see how statement this is. That there's not a single individual that is exempt from this statement. There's not a single individual that is going to be exempt from this statement. And you'll come to see that So the first thing that we need to understand is that in Islam, we actually are held accountable for the things that we say. And this is, you know, even seen during the time of the Sahaba anhum, that Mu'adh ibn Jabal, he, he's, you know, perplexed when the Messenger of Allah وسلم, tells him that you know, the thing that will cause the people to be thrown into the hellfire the furthest are the things that they say by their tongues. And Mu'adh ibn Jabal says, O Messenger of Allah, are we going to be held accountable for that which we say? And the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he affirms in the, in the positive that yes, we will be held accountable for what we say. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala further emphasizes this in the Quran. مَا يَلْفِظُ مِنْ قَوْلٍ إِلَّا لَدَيْهِ رَقِيبٌ عَتِيدٌ That the slave of Allah, the creation of Allah, does not utter a single word, a single letter, except that there are angels writing down each and every single thing that we say. And this is such a scary reality, subhanAllah. You know, a lot of the times, we're not even conscious of the things that we say. So you're in the shower, you start singing, right? You think that no one's hearing what you're saying, but the angels are writing down everything that you're saying. You're in the car, and you know, you start saying something else, right? And the angels are writing down what you're saying. And this is such a scary reality that, you know, when, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks the angels to present everything that you've said, you know, it's gonna be longer than you know, and, and at least in my time growing up, the, the largest collection of English books I, I knew was the Encyclopedia Britannica. I didn't know of anything larger than that. And I still don't think I know. Is there anything larger in English that we can think of? Encyclopedia Britannica? At least that's fine. That's the, the largest thing that I know of. Like what we say is going to be more than the Encyclopedia Britannica, subhanAllah. And that is a, a scary thought. So the things that are documented on your behalf, you want to make sure that they're worthwhile hearing. You want to make sure that they're worthwhile, that Allah will be pleased with, right? Because imagine your whole script is, 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 is read out and then like half of it is like Bollywood songs that you're singing in the shower or like other stupid things you've been saying. 
You know, those sort of things. It's, it's, a, it's a scary reality. Now, speaking good and remaining silent, my reflections on this are, are summarized in three points. Number one is that speech is a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, without a doubt. Some people are tested with lack of speech and they have a particular test. And then you have a group of people that are tested with too much speech and that is a particular test. And both of these tests are very, very difficult as we'll come to see. As for the individual that is very shy, very timid, they don't like to speak very much, then this is a test for them because when the time comes to speak up where something wrong is happening, they're not going to want to speak up because they're natu naturally not very talkative. So speaking at the time when they need to step up to the plate, it's going to be very difficult for them and perhaps even sinful for them if they don't do so at that time. So that's their test. And then you have the other test, which is the test of talking too much. You know, sometimes you make a mistake by asking a brother how his day was. Because he starts summarizing his whole entire life for you in like, you know, uh, in an hour. And just constant, constant speaking about useless details. Now, Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, and this is what we understand from his understanding, that the second test is actually um, more dangerous than the first test. It is actually more dangerous than the first test. Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu as Ibn Rajab rahimahullah uh, narrates from him. He says that whoever speaks a lot will make a lot of mistakes. And whoever mis makes a lot of mistakes will lead to a lot of sin. And whoever commits a lot of sin, then his first destination will be the hellfire. Then his first destination will be the hellfire. And subhanAllah, this is such a, an accurate statement when, when you think about it. That the individual that speaks a lot, he's going to, to make a lot of mistakes. And the more mistakes you make, the more likely or prone you are to commit sin. An individual that commits sin, he will need to be purified, either in this life or in the hereafter. Either in this life or in the hereafter. This concept of, of making mistakes, you know, there's a, a famous quote, I, I think it was by Einstein or by Mark Twain, one of the two. He says that each and every individual is a genius until they open their mouths and prove otherwise. Each and every person is a genius until they open their mouths and prove otherwise. Meaning that if you're constantly opening your mouth, you're prone to prove, you know, how, I don't want to use stupid, but how low your IQ is. That the more you speak, you know, the less intelligent an individual is. That a smarter individual will always remain silent. And this is, you know, in the words of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that whoever remains silent, remains safe. As long as you remain silent, you will remain safe. Now, with that having been said, what are five of the best things that you can do with your tongue? And what are five of the worst things that you can do with your tongue? So I want you to take a second and just think about, we'll do the, the, the worst category first. What are the five worst things that you can do with your tongue? The five worst things that you can do with your tongue. Go ahead. Kufr, fantastic. Well, not fantastic, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so the worst thing that you can do with your tongue is kufr, right? Without a shadow of a doubt, to commit shirk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to commit kufr, to deny Islam, to deny you know, belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. By consensus, this is the worst thing that you can do. What is the second worst thing that you can do? Okay, so now we're, focus on my question, the second worst thing. Go ahead. Backfire? It's in the top five, but it's not number two. Cursing the parents. Cursing your parents. walidain. Interestingly enough, that's not on the list that Ibn Rajab mentioned. But that is a very good answer. That is a very good answer. It's definitely from the major sins, and it should be up there, but it's not in his top five. Ahmed, you're raising your hand? 
Ibrahim, what were you going to say? You weren't going to say anything? You were going to say backbiting? Go ahead, Muhammad. Innovate. Innovate? That goes and sort of, it goes under the second and first category at the same time. But I'm looking for something very general. Go ahead, Ahmed. Lying. Lying, nope. Go ahead, our brother. Sorry? Talk to them and hurt someone's feelings? That's going to be in the, in, the, in the three, four, and five category. Invite others to like, bad actions? Very general, but it falls under this category. Giving a false testimony? Nope. Go ahead. Are bad about the prophet, so that goes under the first category. That's like general disbelief. Okay, so the second one is tough, so I'm going to give it to you, but you should be able to get three, four, and five very easily. The second one is to speak about the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without knowledge. To speak about the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without knowledge. If you look inside Surah Al-A'raf, verse number 33, here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly mentions some of the worst things that you can do is to speak about the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without knowledge. Number three, now go with what you were saying. What's worse than backbiting? Even worse than that to a certain degree. Ibrahim, can you get me the tissue box from the office, please? Sorry? Okay. Uh, close to ifk, but worse than that. That's no, category number one. When you incite a fight between people. Namima, fantastic. So number three is Namima. The individual that goes amongst other individuals and tries to cause animosity between them. Tries to cause animosity between them. Then number four is backbiting. The fourth worst thing that you can do is backbiting. And the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, sorry, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala in Surah Al-Hujarat, He compares backbiting to eating the dead flesh of your brothers. And this is definitely from the major sins that unfortunately the people take very, very lightly. And the fifth and last thing that Ibn Rajab mentions is to lie. The fifth and last thing to mention, he mentions is lying. And this is based upon the hadith of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu where he says, I warn you against lying because lying leads to wickedness and wickedness leads to the hellfire. And a person will continuously lie until he's written with Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala as a perpetual liar. He's written with Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala as a perpetual liar. Now let's focus on the five best things that a person can do with their tongue. So what are the five best things that a person can do with their tongue? The dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nope. <laughs> that goes under dhikr. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says, you know, this is the, the best of speech. Go ahead, our brother in the back. Okay, you're very, very close, but I need specifics. I need something more specific. Speaking the truth. <laughs> Speaking the truth is something should be done all the time. Ridwan, go ahead. Nope. وَمَنْ أَحْسَنَ قَوْلًا Calling the people to goodness, right? So nasiha is a part of it, advising people is a part of it. Calling the people to goodness, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says in Surah Fusilat that who is better in speech than the one that calls the people to Allah. So speaking about Allah would be a part of it. You know, nasiha is a part of it. A general, you know, uh, collaboration of all of these things. Inviting the people back to the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have a question? Okay, can I just finish this list of five? And then you guys can ask some questions inshallah. Number two is dhikr. Number two is dhikr. And the best form of dhikr 
by consensus is the recitation of the Quran. The best form of dhikr is the recitation of the Quran. So that is the second best thing that you can do with your tongue is dhikr in general. The third best thing that you can do with your tongue, what would it be? What is else, something else that you can think of? This is where it's going to get tough. Ibrahim, go ahead. Dua, fantastic. That is number three, to make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, dua huwa al-ibadah. That dua is, you know, the essence of worship within of itself. Fantastic. Number four. What is number four going to be? That will go under number one. That falls under number one. Something that we should be doing on a daily basis. Sorry? Salah. <laughs> no, something more specific than Salah. Dawah, that falls under number one. Go ahead. Sorry? Dhikr, that falls under Dhikr. Fantastic. Making istighfar, that is number four. Making istighfar, that is number four. And number five is a difficult one, so I'm just going to share it. But inspiring happiness into people, saying good things to people, complimenting them, so it inspires happiness into people. And this is something that uh, these both of these lists were taken from uh, Al Hafid ibn Rajab in Jami al Ulum wal Hikam. Now go ahead, you can ask your questions. Ahmed, what was your question? No, that was. That. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's part of number one. Anything else on this on this list? No, fantastic. Now, the hadith of the Messenger of Allah continues, he should speak good or remain silent. Speak good or remain silent. So this concept of remaining silent, there needs to be a balance in this clearly. A person is not required to remain silent all the time, but there should be a process behind a person speaking. So when a person gets into this habit of this process, ta'ala, he will be safe. And that simple process is, before I speak, is this going to be pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? If this is something that is going to be pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then yes, go ahead and speak as much as you like. But if it's not going to be pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or you're not sure if it's going to be pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then the best thing to do at that time is to remain silent, is to remain silent. Now, in terms of um, prolonged silence, can this be considered an act of ibadah, right? So can a person say that, you know what, one of the things I'm going to do to get closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, for the next three days, I'm not going to speak. And the answer to that is no. This is something that possibly was legislated in previous legislations, but in the legislation of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa this is something that is not allowed. But rather a balance is required. So a person cannot say that, you know what, uh, I'm not going to speak for the next three days and this is an act of ibadah for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No, this is not something that would not be accepted. And this is something that is unfortunate that you see amongst certain groups that they take these oaths upon themselves that, you know, for the next 40 days, I'm not going to speak whatsoever. And literally they will go into the forest and they're just going to, you know, wait there until some sort of inspiration comes in these next 40 days and they'll just remain silent and in a contemplative state. While it sounds nice and fine and dandy, this is not the religion that Allah's Messenger came with. We're meant to interact with one another, we're meant to live with one another, and we're meant to you know, speak good or remain silent. Speak good or remain silent. Then the second part of the hadith, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he goes on to say that he should be courteous and generous to his neighbor. He should be courteous and generous to his neighbor. Now this concept of being courteous and generous to their neighbor, you'll notice in our times is something that is completely lost. 
I know for a fact that the vast majority of us have no interaction with our neighbors. You know, we will live next to them, but we won't know much about them. Even knowing their names sometimes will be a, a, you know, a big accomplishment. And this is obviously something that changes over time, but just because a culture changes, it doesn't mean that our Islamic responsibilities change. So as Muslims, we have a responsibility to reach out to our neighbors. And this is something that SubhanAllah, you know, when I think about regularly, the best form of da'wah, when people think about, you know, what is the best form of da'wah that I can do? There is nothing better than being a good neighbor. Right? When your neighbors see you come in and out day and night, they see you constantly smiling, they see you constantly being courteous with them, this is the best form of da'wah that you can do. And you'll notice that if you ever need, you know, a good testimony on your behalf, your neighbor will be your best friend or your worst enemy. Like you ever get accused of terrorism and you're the, you know, the, the quiet guy, the neighbor's like, yeah, we always found him to be this quiet, suspicious guy. And that's just the reality of, of our lives. Like we don't interact with our neighbors. So, you know, when the time comes, so uh, what do you know about your neighbor? And the guy's like, you know, I didn't know much about him at all. So this is like an extra incentive, be extra nice. So that if, you know, if something ever were to happen, they say, so how is your neighbor? Your neighbor's like, this guy was awesome. He was fantastic. You know, he used to cut my grass, used to bake me pie, you know, do a whole bunch of things for me. Look after my kids, you know, all these sort of things. And, you know, that's a, a positive testimony for you. That is a positive testimony for you. And this is something subhanAllah that our, our predecessors said that if you want to look at the, the righteousness of an individual, then ask three people. Then ask three people. Ask the person's spouse, ask the person's neighbor, and ask the person's uh, close companions. That when you ask these three people about an individual, you know, they'll all say similar things. Either this person was amazing, or either this person was a, a terrible and wicked individual that you should <laughs> stay away from. So it's very important that we reach out to our neighbors. Now I want to take a look at some of the narrations that talk about being generous to our neighbors. The first thing, the hadith of the Messenger of Allah wasallam, where he says, Jibreel continued to advise me in fulfilling the rights of the neighbor, until I thought that the neighbors would inherit from me. Until I thought that the neighbors would inherit from me. And subhanAllah, this is something you know, deep to think about. When you think about people who are going to inherit from you, it's your family. And the Messenger of Allah said, I felt that Jibreel kept on advising me about being good to my neighbor, till I thought they were going to inherit from me. Then number two, the Messenger of Allah wasallam, and this is uh, you know, a funny thing that happened in our hadith class in Medina. The hadith of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, it says, Man kana yu'minu billahi wal al-akhir, fala yu'zi jarahu. So uh, this was in, I think sana, the first or second year, I can't remember which year it was. But the person who's reading the hadith, he's, he says, Man kana yu'minu billahi wal al-akhir, fal yu'zi jarahu. And this is only funny in Arabic. But it shows you the significance of saying fal and fala. You know, fal means then let him do it, and fala means don't do it. So he says, whoever believes in Allah in the last day, and the hadith should be, you know, should not harm his neighbor. But the way the brother read it, he says, whoever believes in Allah in the last day, he should harm his neighbor. So it shows you the, you know, the significance over here. But here the Messenger of Allah clearly says that again, you know, part of our iman being complete is that we should not be harming our neighbors. And this brings us into our discussion of what are levels of righteousness towards our neighbors. The lowest level of righteousness is that you should not harm your neighbor, 
right? This is the absolute minimum that you can do. If you can't do good towards them, then at the very least, do not harm them. Then at the very least, do not harm them. Then the higher level is to be good to them, is to actually be good to them, to go out of your way and, um, you know, to, to, to show righteousness and kindness to them. So these are just some of the narrations of the Messenger of Allah pertaining to that. Likewise, you see in a beautiful verse in the Quran in Surah An-Nisa verse number 36, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He says, Worship Allah and join none in worship with Him. Do good to your parents, kinfolks, orphans, and the poor who beg. The neighbor who is near of kin, the neighbor who is a non-relative, and the companion by your side, and the wayfarer that you meet, and what your right hand possesses. Verily, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not like such who are proud and boastful. So if you move backwards from this verse in the Quran, Surah, number, uh, Surah Nisa verse number 36, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in this verse that people who do not show righteousness towards people, they are proud and arrogant. Meaning that a sign of pride and arrogance is that you're not concerned with anyone except for yourself. But what's interesting about this verse in particular is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions three types of neighbors. Three types of neighbors. The neighbor who is also a relative of yours. And then number two, a neighbor who is not a relative of yours. But they just live close by you. They are, you know, a fellow Muslim. And then the third type of neighbor is the, the person who's just a, a close companion of yours. Then he also takes the rights of neighbors. Ibn Raj Ibrahimullah, he divides neighbors into three types of people. And he says, the neighbor that has the highest amount of accountability with you is the one that is a Muslim, that he is a neighbor, and he is your relative. This is the highest level of accountability because you have three types of rights to fulfill for this individual. Then the second type is the one who is your neighbor and is Muslim, then they have two rights over you. And that is the rights of Islam and the rights of being a neighbor. And then the third is the one who is a non-Muslim but is your neighbor. Who is a non-Muslim and is your neighbor. Then they still have the rights of being a neighbor. Which is, you know, being kind to them, being patient upon their harms and, uh, you know, making sure you're not harming them and so on and so forth. So this is something that, you know, I think as a community, we should have like a Muslim day where all of the Muslims just go show kindness to their neighbors. And you release like a, uh, like a, a press release saying that, you know, Muslims are celebrating their neighbors today and everyone's going to go and do something nice for their neighbors. Whether it's baking them something to eat, whether it's, you know, if they're old in age, helping them go do their groceries, looking after their kids, you know, whatever it may be. But this is something that needs to be revived. You know, this is a part of our faith that we show kindness to our neighbors. The last point on the neighbors is how do you define who a neighbor is? How do you define who a neighbor is? And you'll find many, many uh, opinions on this matter. You'll find many, many opinions on this matter. So opinion number one is the opinion of Imam Zuhri and Al-Awza'i. They said it is 40 houses each direction. So 40 houses in front of you, 40 houses to your right, 40 houses to your left, 40 houses behind you. Potentially how many families is that? 160 families. <laughs> that is a lot of accountability. The good thing, opinion number one, it has no basis for it whatsoever. So while it was the opinion of some scholars, there's no uh, basis to this. Opinion number two, it is only the houses that are joining on the sides. So the, the person who's joined to you on your right, person that's joined to you on your left, these are considered your neighbors. This was the opinion of Imam Abu Hanifa and his student, uh, Zafar. 
Opinion number three is that they are your joint neighbors as well as the neighbor in front of you and behind you. This is the opinion of Abu Yusuf and Muhammad from the Hanafi Madhab and also some of the opinions of the Malikis. Opinion number four, and perhaps this is even more strict, which is anyone who lives in a district or in the city. Anyone who lives in the district or the city. The district might be, you know, handleable, but that's still a huge amount. But imagine everyone in the city is considered your neighbor. Everyone in the city is considered your neighbor. So these are the four predominant opinions that are mentioned. There was a master's thesis that was done in uh, Imam University, where a person analyzed, you know, the rights of the neighbors and ordered his whole dissertation on this. His conclusion was that none of these opinions actually have proof for them. So he said that the way Islam meant to define neighbors is according to the orf of the people, according to the customs of the people. So according to whatever the, the custom is in your land, whatever they would call neighbor, then they would be considered your neighbor. So generally speaking, it would be the people that you have regular interaction with inside of your neighborhood. Now just because you're not a social person and you don't have any interaction, it doesn't mean that you, know, you, you don't have to fulfill the rights of your neighbors. In fact, you do have to fulfill the rights of your neighbors, right? So whether you're social or not has nothing to do with it. But you know, look at your close proximity in your neighborhood, then these are the people that you have to fulfill the rights of. Then the last portion of this hadith is that he should show righteousness to his guest. فَلْيُكْرِمْ ضَيْفَهُ now, one thing that's important to understand over here is that while this hadith generally just says daif and daif can be understood as guest, then the specific connotation of this hadith is referring to the guest that travels and comes to visit you. So the guest that travels out of the city to come and visit you, they have special rights over you. They have special rights over you. And I want to share the hadith from Sahih al-Bukhari with you. Where the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, مَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيُكْرِمْ ضَيْفَهُ جَائِزَتُهُ يَوْمٌ وَلَيْلَةِ وَضِيَافَةُ ثَلَاثَةُ أَيَّامِ فَمَا بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ فَهُوَ صَدَقَةٌ so the Messenger of Allah وسلم, says, whoever believes in Allah in the last day should be generous to his guest. His ja'iza, a special gift, is for one day and night. He is to be entertained for three days, and whatever is beyond that is an act of charity. It is not lawful for a guest to stay with his host to the point that he makes things difficult for him. And this is reported by Al-Bukhari. This is reported by Al-Bukhari. So the first thing we want to look at in this hadith is... Is this, you know, hosting and generosity towards our guest something that is obligatory or something that is voluntary? Let's hear the opinions. Hosting our guests, being nice to them, letting them stay with us. Is this something obligatory or is this something voluntary? Go ahead. Okay, why? Fantastic. So that's the main thing is the Amr, that there's a commandment being given here. What is your argument? Um, it's, it's, it's followed on you, because um, at the end of the hadith says that don't let him be simple. Sorry, don't let him? Sorry, I'm talking about different hadith. There's a hadith where it goes like, if you stay more than three days, it says you're the person who's hosting, you get to sin for or something like that. Okay, but that can be like voluntary hosting as well. So if you get a sin for something, right, it means that you can obligate that. So the sin is upon the guest, not upon the host. Right, so the sin, the sin over here is on the, on the guest. 
So the majority of scholars actually said the opposite. They said this is something voluntary. And you'll notice that this is a general approach that scholars took that they wanted to make things easy for the people when they could, right? So they said that generally speaking, any act that unless there's like a clear punishment mentioned for it, we'll just consider it voluntary. So something like, you know, praying tahiyyat al-masjid when you enter into the masjid, there's a clear commandment. The Messenger of Allah says, clearly tell, told the man that, you know, don't sit until you have prayed, right? But the majority of scholars didn't consider this obligatory. They said this is something that this is highly recommended. And this is just so that things would not be made hard for the ummah. So this is a general approach. But then you have certain scholars that are like, you know what? We don't care if things are hard or easy for the ummah. We're just going to speak the truth. And Imam al-Shawkani, uh, rahimahullah, he destroys the argument of why hosting your guest is just something voluntary. He said this is something obligatory. And let's look at some of his arguments and you'll see why bithin ta'ala. Number one is that فَلْيُكْرِمْ ضَيْفَهُ this is a commandment and as a general principle in Islam, anytime you have a commandment, a commandment necessitates obligation until proven otherwise. So now we have, it is an obligation, we need to prove that it's not an obligation by bringing secondary proofs. Number two, in the hadith in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he says that فَمَا بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ صَدَقَةً That that which is after that is a sadaqah, meaning that the first part is not a sadaqah. Right? Meaning that it's not a voluntary charity that you're doing. Uh, and therefore, the first part was something which was uh, uh, obligatory. The first part was something which was obligatory. And those are like his two main points, but he like completely annihilates uh, the other you know, opposing party on this. So it seems that hosting one's guest is something which is obligatory. And just so you understand the proper context, you know, Brother Abdullah comes from out of town. He meets Sajjad in the masjid. Sajjad looks like a nice guy. And he says, you know what, Sajjad? I want my right as, a, as a, a traveling guest upon you. So if you take the opinion that it's obligatory, Sajjad cannot say no at this time. He has to say, you know what? Come to my house and I will treat you like a king for the first day. Treat him with the best of food, the best of desserts. You know, pretty much anything that this guy wants. Then for the next two days, He'll treat him the same way Sajjad treats himself. And then after that, you know, it's up to Sajjad, does he want this guy to stay? Does he want this guy to leave? Now, the important thing to understand over here is that scholars always related this to Qudra. Meaning that if an individual comes and look, you, don't have, you barely have enough food for yourself and your family, then you are allowed to excuse yourself, right? It doesn't mean that you sacrifice your family's food to, and you give it to the, this individual, right? And you just be straight up, look, tell, like, sorry, I, I can't host you. But it also shows us, you know, uh, an important sunnah that's forgotten. That if a traveler comes into the town and he says, I want to stay with you, then from the hospitality of Islam is that we host this individual in our houses. So the Messenger of Allah in the, in the hadith of Bukhari, he mentions the term jaiz, a special, uh, you know, honor that he's given. And he said that he should treat his guest with the best that he's capable of. So the best food that a person knows of, the best bedding a person knows of, the best clothing a person knows of, this is what he should give him for the first day. And then the sub uh, subsequent days, number two and number three, whatever he chooses for himself in terms of food, bedding, and clothing, then this is what he should give to his guest as well. And then after that, he is allowed to ask his guest to leave. He is allowed to ask his guest to leave. Now, general points related to the hadith. Um, I guess let's just summarize what we took in the hadith. 
Number one is that belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the last day are meant to inspire us with good deeds, right? That is what they are there for. That longing to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspires us to do good deeds because we want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be pleased with us. The day of judgment inspires us to do good deeds because we, want, we don't want to show up on the day of judgment and our bad deeds outweigh our good deeds, right? Number two is that Islam teaches us to be social human beings but with guidelines. Islam teaches us to be social but with guidelines. Number three, a person is meant to speak as long as it is good for them. And this is like a conscious decision that a person should make and create a process in their mind that, hey, if I'm going to speak now, is this something that will be for me or will it be held against me on the Day of Judgment? And there's actually a very nice hadith where the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said, لا تكلم بكلام تعتذر منه غدا That the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said, do not speak with a speech that you have to apologize or excuse yourself for tomorrow. So this is something that we should consciously be thinking of, that before we speak, are we hurting someone's feelings? Am I sinful for this statement? You know, so on and so forth. And if that is the case, then we should refrain from it. Number two, is that the rights of the neighbors are huge. And these are rights that we will be questioned about, and they are something that we have to fulfill. And the reality of our situation is, that a lot of our, the times our neighbors may be punks. You know, I know one of my neighbors is a clear, clear punk. But this does not mean that we have the right to ignore them. This does not mean we have the right to abuse them in any way. But we need to fulfill their rights to the best of our ability and be nice to them. And this is the best form of da'wah. And trust me, it will work in your favors, either in this dunya or in the akhirah, guaranteed. And then the third thing is the rights of the guest. As Muslims, we're meant to be very, very hospitable towards our guests. And I'll share one of, uh, you know, there was a, a poem that we were taught in the Arabic Institute. It was about a Bedouin man who was in that situation where a guest came from out of town and he wants to stay with this individual. Now this individual, he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything. He's poor, you know, he didn't own anything. So he has a conversation with his son. And this is not a real thing that happened, at least I hope not. Uh, but it's just to show the level of, uh, level of hospitality that how far the Arabs of old would go in hosting their guests. And the son responds, you know, oh my father, if this is what is required for us to be, you know, honorable towards our, towards our guests, then let it be. And you know, we don't really know what happens after that. But it just the, the <laughs> just the point of showing that, you know, how far, you know, a person is willing to go to, to host his guests. Because this is a part of our own honor, right? The way we host people, it reflects, it's on our own reputation. So our guests even have rights upon us, and we should do our utmost best to, to host people to the best of our ability. So when someone comes to your house, you know, don't just ask them, hey, can I get you some water? Go the extra mile, you know, whatever you have, juice, tea, coffee, or whatever you like to drink, you know, provide that for them. Provide them with food. Make, them, make sure they're comfortable. Make sure they feel at home while they're with you, right? This is what is required from Islam in that situation. And we will conclude with that. Wallahu ta'ala alam wa sallallahu wa sallam wa barak ala nabiyyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. And next week we will continue with hadith number 16 on Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. And that hadith is the hadith of the Messenger of Allah where a man came seeking advice and he said, do not become angry. Do not become angry. Do not become angry.